Well, no props today, although someone did tell me this morning that they went out and bought a skull for themselves this week. So I guess skull sales are up, among other things. Maybe there'll be a big rush at the stores on them. I don't know. But last week we had a friend joining us to make a point about what matters most. This morning we're going to be talking about what you don't want to be. And if there's anything you don't want to be, biblically speaking, what you don't want to be is a fool. It is one of the greatest insults, if not the greatest insult in all of the Bible's vocabulary. Fools have lives and live lives that end in tragedy. Fools are the opposite of wise. Fools are those who don't learn from experience. They don't learn from their own experiences. They don't learn from the experiences of others. If there's one thing you don't want to be in this life or leading into the next is a fool. Thankfully, Jesus cares about those who belong to him enough to address the matter of wise living versus foolish living, not just in the here and now, but actually wise living versus foolish living as it would relate to eternity. And so we're going to hear from Jesus, Jesus, the one the Bible says in Colossians 3, 2, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we're going to look at the one who is wisdom personified so that we might be wise, so that we might not be fools, so that we might not live lives that end and exhibit tragedy. And our text is going to be chapter 7 of the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew. So if you have a Bible, you can join me in the seventh chapter of Matthew's gospel account. And that means if we're in Matthew 7, we're in the last chapter of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is with his disciples. They're in Galilee, uh, early in his ministry, early in him recruiting them for their ministry. He's training them. He's preparing them to go out and do ministry in his name. And in Matthew, se- or excuse me, Matthew verses Chapter 5 to 7, Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Hillside next to the Sea of Galilee. The disciples are around him. They're his immediate audience, as you might remember, and the crowds are listening in. And he, in this chapter, instructs them. He gives a series of instructions about wise living versus foolish living. And I want you to drop down with me so you can kind of see the key to the passage, kind of like we did last week. Uh, the key to the first, to the whole chapter really is found at the end in verses 24, 25, 26, and 27. So we're going to look at verses 1 to 23 today, but let's look ahead to see the key to the whole thing where it says in verse 24, chapter 7, everyone then who hears these words of mine, these instructions of mine, we're going to call them instructions, uh, we're going to see seven of them, but who hears these instructions, these words of mine, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So there's our wisdom theme. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, these instructions of mine, and does not do them will be like a, here we go, foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So you see there, there's the contrast. 
wise versus foolish. And so if you hear and do the instructions of Jesus in the first 23 verses, you're the wise one. If you don't, you're the foolish one and your life ends in tragedy. And so that's where I got my outline idea for seven instructions from Jesus that make one wise, not foolish. We're looking to be wise, not foolish. So we want to listen to the instructions of Jesus. I don't think we'll finish all seven of them this morning. I don't have an intention of doing that. Maybe we'll get to five. Maybe we'll get to six. Maybe we'll get to one. I don't know, but I think we'll probably do the first five or so. Hopefully you're ready to go. I certainly am. Let's learn how to be wise from Jesus as we belong to him like his disciples. The first instruction to make us wise, number one, is wise judging. Wise judging. Look there in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Now in a moment, he's going to talk about the right way to do it. But at first, he says, judge not that you not be judged. And just ever so quickly, I have to say that that's, that's the most quoted and misunderstood verse in the 21st century. It's probably the most famous Bible verse in America in the 21st century. It used to be John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that that whosoever would believe in him would have eternal life and not perish. But it's probably fair to say that in the 21st century, this is the most popular. People don't know where it is. People don't know what it means. But we love us some judge not lest you be judged. More about that in a moment. I had to digress just for a second. It really actually is important. I I, I don't want to negate this. I don't want this to be negative. It's actually a positive instruction from Jesus. uh, Put in a negative way, judge not. What does it mean to judge? Well, here actually the word that he uses is oftentimes translated condemn. Judge with a view toward condemning. You're wrong. It's the person who has a negative spirit, a condemning spirit, looking on the lookout for people who don't do the right things. And Jesus says, don't be a condemner. Don't be that guy. Don't be that gal who's always looking to condemn people for not doing the right thing, for violating the law. It could be violating God's law. It could be violating societal laws. It could be violating my laws. In other words, you might not live up to my expectations. And so I judge you and I condemn you because you don't meet my expectations. You get the idea. We all understand it, unfortunately. And Jesus is helping his disciples to say, don't, don't be those disciples. Hopefully we're going to learn to not be those disciples either. Don't make this a practice. It's actually the, the grammar present tense command. So it's either don't make this a habit or even stop if you're doing this. This is, this is not how it goes in, in Christianity. Now, the next question would be, why, why judge not? And he answers that question for us in verse 1. Look there with me, that you be not judged. Oh, that's fascinating. So, don't, don't be that one to condemn people because turnabout, turnabout is fair play. Because you're going to be scrutinized with the same kind of scrutiny you're scrutinizing with. Uh, to, to borrow uh, a, an unbiblical saying, or I should say a non-biblical saying. A former president said it was in the Bible, but it's not. But judge not lest you be judged. People who live in glass houses should not what? Should not throw stones. 
That's a, that's a truism. That's a, that's a good proverbial statement. It's not in the Bible, but it's actually the, capturing the idea of what's happening here. And the fact of the matter is, all of us who are sons and daughters of Adam live in glass houses. And so you ought to be careful how you act toward criticizing others because turnabout ends up being fair play. It says in verse 2, For, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, you use it will be measured to you. Measuring. When you measure something, you evaluate how big it is, how long it is, if it's going to fit or not. It's an evaluation kind of thing. Is this talking about God's judgment? Is it talking about others judging? Well, either way, you get the point. God is a judge. He's a perfect judge. He's a strict judge. Um, but certainly it would apply here on a social, societal level. You judge and you are judged. So the idea is pretty easy. It's pretty simple. It's really hard to do because I'm critical and I criticize other people. And it seems to be an art of sinful human people to be able to criticize other people and not see that you yourself don't meet other standards, if not the same standard. It seems like we're so good at it. To use myself, you can find fault with me. I might not live up to God's law. I want to, but I won't. Ultimately, that's why I need a substitute. I'm not going to live up to societal laws. I want to because that's what we're supposed to do uh, insofar as we can. I'm not going to meet your expectations. I might want to. I might not. But the reality is guilty, 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 guilty. And I can turn it around and do the same thing in your life. And Jesus is saying, be really careful about being that person. doesn't make a lot of sense. Live by the law, die by the law. The law is no respecter of persons. It will cut you down. It will most assuredly cut you down as it cuts other people down. What's important, and we get the spirit from Jesus here, and we get it throughout the whole Bible, quite honestly, because he is going to go on to talk about there is a place for correcting and helping someone. But the spirit, the way to understand this is when we do help someone, you're going to see this in a second, we, under, we, we help them, even if it means criticism, we do it from the posture of humility as a fellow guilty person. So I'm guilty. I don't meet the expectations of others. I certainly don't meet God's expectations. And so as a guilty person, I might want to help other guilty people. And you see how that really changes. It allows us to show mercy in our helping. Well, let's go ahead and see it in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? That little tiny sliver, that little kind of something, minuscule. But do you notice the log that is in your own eye? It's meant to be ridiculous, right? It's like, it's like a big beam you would have in your house, uh, in the attic to hold the roof up. It's a, it's a major part of the structure. And can you imagine the imagery that we could all imagine? You've got this thing sticking out of your eye and you're looking around like this and it's ridiculous. And you got a little something there in your eye. It's meant to just be comical and ridiculous and as stupid as could possibly be. And Jesus wants us to see it that way. Verse 4, Or how can you say to your brother... Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite, you, you 
actor. You, you faker. You pretend like you, you meet all obligations. And that doesn't make sense. And so he says, after the comma, first, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Tremendously important. Tremendously important for them. Tremendously important for anybody. We tend to overestimate ourselves. It's part of being fallen and sinful. But even think of it in terms of they're the disciples of Jesus. I mean, they're, 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 Jesus is their homeboy. <laughs> Not really. It's too casual, I know. But they're, they're really with him. I mean, the, the one that they're discipled by, the one they're with is the truth. And so if anybody knows, they know. Well, Christians know things. Christians hopefully know things in general, but know extraordinary things. And so it can wrongly fuel this kind of judgmentalism, quick to condemn kind of attitude. We forget that everything we have has been given as a a merciful gift. This is really good equipping for them as they're ready to go out and do ministry. It's really good equipping for us. Judge not lest you be judged. Don't be that person who's quick to condemn others. Doesn't mean there isn't a place to help, but there's a right way to help. There's a posture, uh, a posture of having received mercy, you give mercy. In chapter 7, verse 11, he's going to refer to these disciples as evil. To these disciples who belong to Jesus. He's not talking about the out there unbelievers. He's talking about the inside unbelievers as evil. You ought to be careful in being a condemning person to other people if you're, if you're that person. It's fascinating. So I think we have it. It's pretty straightforward. It's going to be hard to do. Critical spirit kind of people. Christians ought to be really careful about that. Now, let's take at least a moment to talk about what this doesn't mean, as it is in pop culture. Jesus doesn't mean uh, pretend like there's no such thing between right and wrong. Jesus is not saying turn your brain off and don't think. Um, Jesus isn't calling for everyone to be a functional postmodern. Um, Jesus isn't saying all all roads are the same roads. Uh, Jesus isn't even saying never judge. Okay? In, in our very text, this just shows that we're, we're, we're so biblically ignorant that we don't have a clue about what it means. Sorry, I don't know how else to say it. In our very text, he's going to call people false prophets and he's going to warn, watch out for the false prophets. Judge not lest you be judged. It's ridiculous. It's not this kind of absolutized to the point of ridiculousness. It's the spirit of what he's getting at. Don't be quick to condemn people. But I would like to go on record as saying when he says don't judge, he doesn't mean don't judge. In the way that we want it to mean sometimes. Like, like a biblicist would. A biblicist is the kind of person who takes verses and maybe they'll even look at the Greek word and they're going to take it and they're going to take it out of context and ignore everything else. If we did that in, our, in one another's lives without understanding nuance and understanding and there's more to the story, we would have utter chaos. Well, biblicists make utter chaos out of the Bible. Even people who are unbelievers who don't know the Bible end up acting like biblicists. Judge not lest you be judged. And then he goes on to explain what he means. He's going to say, you should judge false false prophets by their fruit. Uh, and, and, And he's going to say in the next verse, he's going to call people pigs. Oh, judge not lest you be judged. 
Well, it's missing the point of what he's getting at. So let's be careful in understanding what he's saying here. He's not going to say, don't do church discipline. That's in chapter 18. You're going to do it out of a certain spirit in a certain way. Patience, loving kindness, generosity. Um, There is right and wrong. There is such a thing as law and lawlessness. He's going to talk about in this very text. Uh, Proverbs is filled with instruction to rebuke fools. Uh, Judge not lest you be judged. No, it's not. It's missing the idea. So let's understand what it does mean and embrace it as important, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and end up being biblically ignorant about what the intention is. Maybe I'll say this. Authentic Christianity, which is what we're striving for because we want to we be authentic and genuine, isn't self-righteous. Christians know that they're not righteous. They need Christ's righteousness. So every good thing that we have has been given as a gift. And so it helps us, it must help us to view other people differently. God has not accepted us because we're so good. Remember chapter 1, verse 21, Jesus came to save his people from their sins, their unrighteousness. Well, by way of application, this this text is really helpful Imagine just relationships on different levels, whether it be broad culture, friendships, families, immediate, extended. Judge not, lest you be judged. Don't be quick to condemn people for not meeting God's expectations or meeting your expectations because the fact of the matter is you are an expectation-meeting failure. It's going to cause you to assume the best. It's going to cause you to be merciful. It's going to cause you to not be jealous. It's going to help you to say, you know what? I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt here. Makes me think about parenting. Those of you who are parents, grandparents, or you can certainly understand the principle. We're called to have our children obey. That's a New Testament commandment from an apostle of Jesus. Children obey your parents. At the same time, those same parents who are asking their children to obey don't obey God the way they're supposed to. You've got to remember that. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, they're, they're chips off the old block. And so, yes, we want, to get our, we want to train our children and help them to do the right thing, but hopefully they know, I want them to know, Dad doesn't meet God's requirements. Dad doesn't meet other requirements. He doesn't meet Mom's requirements. Dad fails too. This is good and this is right. No excuses. But it comes from a vantage point of humility as sinner to sinner looking to help. Our world would be different. Omaha Bible Church would be different if we took the the instruction, the wise instruction from Jesus to heart. Don't be quick to condemn people. Be slow. Be slow to do that doesn't mean anything goes, but it does mean a certain kind of posture. I'm so grateful for this instruction from Jesus. Judge not lest you be judged. Condemn not lest you be condemned. Well, I hope you're ready to move on because I'm moving on to number two. Another point of instruction from Jesus about wisdom, so our lives don't end in tragedy, is wise withholding. Wise withholding. We're going to hold certain things back if we're wise. Verse 6 says, here, this, is a real, this is a real doozy. Uh, verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before 
pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. It would almost be funny if it wasn't meant to be funny. So he, he doesn't mean dogs like my dog Ozzy, who I had here this week as my, my therapy dog. Um, my therapy peacock was sick, so I brought my therapy puppy to church. Never mind, I digress. So he doesn't mean Fido. He doesn't mean your, your, your house pet. Dogs, uh, wild dogs, dogs that are rabid, dogs like if you went somewhere like Bangladesh and are on the street, inner city, and you see that kind of dog and you walk to the other side of the street because you, you, you're afraid of that kind of dog and what diseases it might be carrying. Okay? Those kinds of dogs. He, he, the Apostle Paul in chapter 3 of Philippians calls false teachers dogs and evil workers. They're dangerous. They're not friendly. They're not nice. So don't give to dogs what is holy. Holy would be the things of God. Uh, things that belong to God, things that are from God. Uh, there's an incompatibility there. If you're wise, you won't be giving holy things to dogs. And he's obviously meaning a, it's a metaphor for something spiritual. You don't give the things of God to those who would be like false teachers, who are those who are enemies of the cross, those who are opposed, not mere unbelievers, but the, the antag- settled antagonists. And do not throw your pearls. Pearls would be something to be cherished, uh, treated with with care, things of beauty. He's relating them to the things of God. Uh, In chapter 13, he will relate pearls to the gospel. uh, Before pigs, see the incompatibility seems ridiculous. Lest they trample them. They don't know how to take care of such things. They don't know how to take care of of things of beauty and things that might be uh, needing great care. They will trample them underfoot. They'll destroy them. They'll try to demolish them. They won't show care. And they will turn to attack you. Pigs are ceremonially unclean in the old covenant world. Things of the Gentiles, not things of the Jews. You get the idea. Jesus' point seems to be, and Jesus' demeanor toward rank-and-file unbelievers and those who are adamantly settled and opposed who've heard and rejected is, is pretty different. Even his apostles do the same thing. How we do this, I don't know exactly. But there comes a point where you don't keep giving the truth and you don't keep giving your time and you don't keep giving the investment of the truth again and again and again and again to those who are settled in their resistance and opposition to gospel truths would be the application. Yes, we're to go and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus doesn't say, only go to some people. Only go to the nice ones that don't resemble dogs and pigs. (laughs) He doesn't do that. Everybody needs to hear. But there comes a point, if he's helping instruct us, where you say, I'm going to find other warm bodies. This is going nowhere. There comes a point where we say, I don't really see the reason why we keep having these meetings. There comes a point where you say, you know, and again, I would say you're going to pray about this. You're going to look for wisdom because you don't know exactly when you make the determination. But we get the idea. We get the idea. If you're wise, you're not going to give your pearls to pigs and you're not going to give what is holy to dogs. It's a waste and we could even say it's also dangerous. It's a hard one, I would say. I, I would want to be slow to, to make pig pronouncements. I might not even say it. 
easier for me when it comes to false teachers because I know they're labeled as dogs and evil workers in Philippians 3. But at what point when people will not respond, will not respond, will not respond, will not respond, do you say, I, I don't really think we have a reason to keep meeting? If, 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 there, if, there, if there seems to be a, a semblance of the fact that they're a sheep in need of help and care, but sheep do have an appetite for Christ's word, Christ says. So I'm not going to pretend to know exactly how this works and the ins and outs of it, but I think we can understand the point and pray for wisdom on how to do it. Well, let's continue to seek wisdom from Jesus with a third instruction that will make us wise and not foolish so we don't have tragic lives in this and the next, and that is number three, wise asking. Wise asking or wise praying. This seems to be an elaboration of instruction on prayer from chapter 6. Remember in chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer, Jesus taught them how to pray, uh, and here he seems to elaborate on that, and it's really rich. It, it's this is, this is great stuff. This, this is like you, this is like me getting adopted into your good family, having come from a bad family, and I get adopted into your family, and you're nice and kind and generous, and you take me by the hand and you say, Pat, here's how things work here. Let me help you understand how things work in this family you're in, okay? I was alienated, I was estranged, I was a child of the devil, all this, and you're kind and gracious, if you're Jesus, who's your elder brother, borrowing from Hebrews chapter 2, and who's, who always does the right thing so the Father is pleased with him, and he says, here's how things work in the new family. And I want you to know, here's how things work in the family of God. Let's check it out. Ask. That's really good. Verse 7, ask. In context, according to verse 11, it's ask your father. So, so ask God, ask God your Father. That's our context. And it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Things that make you go, hmm. I go, that, really? Is it, seriously? I mean, just imagine coming from a bad spot. And now you, you're in a family where you call God Father. Remember earlier, Jesus keeps saying, Father, 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 Father. And your Father, your Father, your Father, your Father. You have a new relationship with God by virtue of what Christ will do as the Savior. So you get to talk to Him as Father, as Daddy. He cares for you. And here's how it goes in my house. Just ask. It's really good. For everyone... And again, let's keep it in context. Let's not be like the cultic uh, biblicist. Everyone who has God as his or her father by faith in Christ, according to the whole narrative. For everyone who's in this familial relationship, who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. This is some great wisdom. This is great to know this is how things work. And, and I kind of want you to see the outrageousness of the fact that he says, this is how it goes for everyone. Because our tendency ends up being, because we're on the meritorious meritocracy kind of treadmill, and I'm, for, I'm all for meritocracy when it comes to grades, uh, when it comes to things like that. But when it comes to 
being in the family of God, having God as your father, the, the only one who, the, the, there's no meritocracy for sinners because the only way we got in was by trusting in the son. And so by, by virtue of the perfect obedience of the son and the perfect sacrifice of the son to atone for our sins, we trust in him and we're in the family. Therefore, that, see, that, that's, that's what makes it outrageous, but wonderfully outrageous. It's why Jesus can say, everyone who asks. And you say, but you know what? I know people, I know people in this room who I think I'm better than them. And so I might, I should ask and they, everyone who asks because we stand on an equal footing. If we're truly sheeple, if we're truly sheep, who are the people of God, we're all equal in Christ. We're one in Christ. We're united to Christ. Therefore, we're on equal footing. So therefore, everyone who asks receives. This is really good. This is how things work in the family of God. This is dropping some serious good wisdom, we might say. Verse 9 says, Or, contrast, or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? It's just dumb. It's ridiculous. One is worthless and the other is dangerous. Well, what kind of dad would do that? It's just stupid. If you then, Jesus says to his disciples, those who belong to him, those who have God as their father, haha, if you then who are evil, pretty interesting, no qualifiers, he assumes they know it and believe it because they're biblically literate and they're honest with themselves to one degree or another. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, arguing from the lesser to the greater, how much more, I love it, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, the all-powerful, all-knowing, kind and gracious and perfectly merciful one, give good things, good gifts, good things to those who ask Him. It's really, really awesome. Here's how things work in your new family. Ask. Just ask. It's how family life works. We won't cross-reference today for the sake of time. We could go to other texts. You don't always get what you ask for. Your needs are always going to be met. Always going to be met. You're not going to get a stone instead of bread. You're not going to get a serpent instead of, instead of fish. Romans 8 would be a good text to go to. We won't go there. I like what John Calvin said about this. He said, there is nothing that we do not allow ourselves to ask from God. And if he does not fulfill our stupid ideas, we grumble at him. So Christ subjects our prayers to the will of God. And I would say Christ subjects our prayers to the will of God in a Romans 8 sort of way by the Spirit of Christ. So we just pray, we ask, and we don't always know how to pray according to the will of God. So the Spirit intercedes. The Spirit of Christ intercedes on our behalf. I said we weren't going to cross-reference, but we're not going to go there. I'm just giving you the gist of it. But we ask, and He graciously gives. I suppose we could say like a good mom or a good dad, they don't always give their kids everything they ask for, or they wouldn't be good parents. 
But the demeanor, the kindness, the generosity, ask and you will. Super helpful. Now, just as a a momentary light affliction, no, as a momentary aside, before we move on, I I can't help myself. Do, do, Do make sure you see that he did refer to those who have God as their father as evil. So let's just make sure we understand that that's how it goes in Christianity. I know there was a popular Bible teacher here locally who years ago was trying to convince Christians that they shouldn't see themselves as sinners. They should only see themselves as saints. And so you might have some of that baggage, I'm not sure. I think uh, somebody who popularized that not too many years ago was Neil Anderson. Well, that doesn't fit the Bible. It, might fit your, it fits a self-esteem kind of movement. Uh, it doesn't fit the Bible, and it doesn't fit even our Christian history. history. It doesn't fit with the Protestant Reformation. Okay, And so it reflects a bad look on history. It reflects a bad look on the Bible. The reality is God is your father. You ask and he gives. By the way, you're evil. (laughs) Well, (laughs) the reality is this is how Christianity works. We're not inherently righteous. We're not inherently good. We're we're not in... in that's That's not what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is still to be a sinner. The Apostle Paul still calls himself chief of sinners as a Christian. But let's just stick to this text. The reason you are righteous is not because you are inherently righteous. It's because Christ's perfect righteousness, because of his life, death, resurrection, all that he's done, it's credited to you. It's it's credited to your spiritual account. It's not yours. But now in Christ, see, united to Christ, God declares you righteous even though you're not So that's classic Protestant Reformed theology, biblical theology here from Jesus. So let's keep keep that in mind for sure. And even we remember in our text in Matthew chapter 3, chapter 5, to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is the one who does that, not us. This is why Protestant Reformers use the label, the Latin label, simul justus et peccator. And I think R.C. Sproul used to say, et is past tense for eat. And then he laughs. It's not really. <laughs> Simul, simultaneous. Eustace with a J, where we get justification, righteousness. Et, simultaneously. Righteous, justification, righteous. And at the same time, peccator, Sinful. Simultaneously righteous and sinful at the same time because I'm inherently sinful and yet I have Christ's righteousness credited to me, who, by the way, is transforming my life as well and helping me to grow in righteousness. But notice the disciples didn't bat an eye. We're the ones who bat an eye because we have baggage. But see, what I want to do this morning is to help you to see Christ as maybe even better than you thought he was. Martin Luther talked about even how, uh, sorry, he was kind of a crass guy. Calvin likes to, st- to say stupid, um, and Luther likes to use um, unspeakable terminology. So he talks about a pile of dung, and he refers to himself as the pile of dung, and he's still the pile of dung. And yet a beautiful, wonderful winter, white, crisp, pure snowfall covers him, and Christ's righteousness covers us as a beautiful robe, even though we, you get the idea, I should stop. Um, 
You want more Latin? I can give you more Latin from Luther, but probably won't. Oh, I'll give you a little bit more. We have righteousness from the outside. Extra nos. Extra from the outside. It's extra nos. It's righteousness from the outside. Luther said this, when I discovered that, that it's righteousness extra nos, alien righteousness from outside of me, not inherent, like he was taught by the, by, by the Roman Catholic Church that it had to be inside him and he couldn't get enough, he couldn't do enough. Luther said, when I discovered that, I was born again by the Holy Ghost or of the Holy Ghost and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. Because now he knew he could. Because even if he were evil... He had Christ's alien extra nos righteousness. Probably enough Latin for the day. I'll just, so I'm not lying. I've never taken a Latin class in my whole life. Um, Greek and Hebrew. was better at Greek than Hebrew. Uh, No Latin, but I do have a Latin dictionary. A theological Latin dictionary that I like a lot. Let's move on to number four. The fourth instruction to make one wise and not foolish is wise treating. Wise treating. I'm trying to keep these real short into two words. In other words, we treat others appropriately. Wise treating. Verse 12 says, So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let that sink in. That's, that's golden rule talk. Jesus identifies the true origin of the golden rule. It comes from the one true living God through the law and the prophets. So what you would wish that others would do to you, do also to them. That would also be, that would come from natural law, the law written on our hearts, a la Romans chapter 2. This just makes sense to people. This is just common sense. Jesus does liken this, though, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 40, to loving your neighbor, law of God. We might not pick it up in English, but grammar experts tell us that the you is emphatic for emphasis. So whatever you wish, others would do to you, do you, you could supply the you, you do also to them. And the reason grammar experts bring it up is because they're trying to make the point Maybe Jesus is making the point. They think he is making the point, whether they do the right thing to you or not. You do this. You're my disciples. Don't wait for them to do the right thing to you, and then you'll try to return the favor. Think in terms of what would you want done to you? Well, I would want people to love me and assume the best and give me the benefit of the doubt and all of those kinds of things. And so I should do the same to them, and that's how Christians should act. Not giving people what they deserve. Strict justice. Right? We, we've received mercy from God. He, he, he saved us from our, from our sins based upon the, the, the works of Christ. That take, take us again back to chapter 1, verse 21. And so, I would want to be merciful to people. And what would I want them to do for me? Oh, that's what I'm going to do for them. Love not jealousy. Let's do number five, the next one. That one was quick. The next instruction, hope you're hanging in there. I know we all have a lot of places to be today under lockdown and quarantine. Maybe we'll do chapter eight as well. 
we won't do that. Thankfully, some of you are helping the rest of us and working. Let's go to number five. The next instruction to make one wise and not foolish is wise entering. And this one is really strong, powerful, helpful, clear, culturally controversial. That's why he says it the way he says it. Here we go. Let's be wise and let's do what Jesus says here. My prayer for you is that you would do what Jesus says here. You would think like this. Verse 13 says, Enter, enter by the narrow gate. The narrow entrance. The gate is an entrance. Enter by the narrow gate. And in your margin, you can write what I wrote in my margin if you would like so we understand it better. Enter by the narrow gate. Well, verse 14 says he's talking about life, eternal life. So you enter by the narrow gate for eternal life. Verse 14, you enter by the narrow gate according to verses 21 and following. You enter by the narrow gate to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so he's talking about the ultimate wisdom here. Yeah, this, this, don't have your life end in tragedy in an eternal sense. He's saying enter by the narrow gate, the, the narrow entrance. For eternal life, for the kingdom of heaven. And here's why it's so important in verse 13. Don't miss this. For the gate or the entrance is wide. It's big. It's expansive. And the way is easy that leads to destruction. So see, that's the contrast to life. Destruction here. And those who enter by it are many. So this is counterintuitive. This is something you have to be on your game for. Don't be a fool. Don't be an idiot. Learn. Be wise. Kindly, graciously, Jesus is urging them. There's a sense of urgency. Enter this way for life. And then verse 14 says, For the gate, the entrance, is narrow, that, and the way is hard, that leads to life. And those who find it are few, not many. All the contrast going on. What's he talking about? Well, I think we've already seen it and I've already explained, but hopefully you can see it for yourself. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about entering into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He's talking about eternal matters. he's, He's got a sense of urgency. Enter, enter this way. Significant stakes. I want to ask you this question that I think is so important in answering or in understanding this. So what is the narrow entrance, the narrow gate that leads to life? I think most Christians, I hope every Christian can answer that. If you're not a Christian, you might be able to answer it as well based upon what we've been reading. But the answer should be as obvious as the nose on my face. But sometimes we read this and interpret it out of context from the whole, out of the context of, as I keep saying, chapter 1, verse 21, he came to save his people from their sins. He's the Savior. Uh, Out of the greater context, the way to eternal life is through Christ. What is the narrow gate? What is the entrance? What is the way to eternal life? It's not what. It's whom. It's Christ. Without any question, I'm basing my eternal destiny on it. It's Christ. He's the gate. He's the entrance. We can cross-reference all over the place, in Matthew and out of Matthew. Let's start with John 14. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Ah, verbiage. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's the way. He's the righteous. He's the Savior. John 4, 42. He's the Savior of the world. And what that doesn't mean, newsflash to biblicists, what that doesn't mean that the whole world is saved. It means He's the one and only Savior. God sent a Savior, His Son, into the world. And He's the one and only Savior that the world has. It's awesome. It's great. He's the Savior of the world. But it's not teaching universalism. It's a narrow entrance. It's Him. He's the one gate that the world has. Enter. By God's grace, enter. John chapter 8, verse 24. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Chapter 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. So the way to eternal life is through Him who is the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He's the gate. He's the entrance. What makes it narrow? It's narrow. Well, he's the one son. He's the first Timothy chapter two, verse five, one mediator. There's there's a bazillion and one countless other options on the broad through the broad gate. There there countless bazillions, or whatever number you'd like to choose. It's really broad. There's only one, only one Savior, only one the righteous. Enter through Him. It's a narrow entrance, great, awesome, amazing entrance. But there's only one. It's narrow. Next question is, because I know you're asking it, what makes it hard? Well, please don't lose your ever-loving Protestant mind here. As preachers are prone to do here. What makes it hard is you, you really got to do a lot. And you really got to get after it. And you know, it's, just, it's, it's hard to get into heaven and you really got to get after it. And come on, we got, we got to do more and we got to be more obedient. And, and, and pound of flesh preachers love this. And I hate pound of flesh preachers. Judge not lest you be judged, I know. What makes it hard? Remember chapter 1 verse 21, he's the Savior. What makes it hard is not that we better get busy so we can help save ourselves. He's the Savior. What makes it hard is it's humbling for sinners to accept. It's counterintuitive for sinners. It's hard because of the fallout. If you believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by Him and you proclaim that even though you have a smile on your face and you've received mercy so you're trying to show mercy, that's hard socially, that's hard culturally, that might be hard in your family, in your relationships. And Jesus is going to talk about how it is hard sometimes later in this gospel account. But it's not hard because it takes so much of our effort to be good enough to get in. In Matthew 11, you know these words, but I'm going to remind you of how helpful they are. He says in verse 28, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The being saved part is not the hard part. It's the restful part. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, it's in him you find rest for your souls. Never miss verse 30, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 
there's a sense in which it's, the, the narrow road is hard. But to be saved is not hard because it's all the work of Christ. He says, it's easy. It's easy, but it's hard because it's easy. I once heard a preacher, and I thought I wanted to learn a lot from it, describing this passage as narrow means there's no room for your sin. It's kind of hard for these disciples who have just been called evil. If you look to Christ, there's room for you and your sin, and He will cleanse you from your sin. And He will remove it as far as the east is from the west. You've got to look to Him. It's not hard because it's really hard to do enough to be saved. If anything, it's hard because we look to Christ who did enough for us to be saved. And that's sometimes hard to accept and comprehend. And it's hard as well because if we're looking to Him as the one and only Savior, it will create hardships. We have to remember that we're not the first people who lived in a pluralistic society with multiculturalism and with a religious emphasis. If we think that, we don't know anything about Roman culture. If we think that, we don't know anything about Greece, Greco-Roman culture. Gods after gods after gods after gods after gods. So it is hard then to say... I'm a Christian. There's only one God and His Son is the one and only way to salvation. Jesus is equipping us. He's helping us. He was helping His his disciples to know this narrow road is going to be hard. You're going to take it on the chin for this. Not because you're earning your way, but because I have and it silences all others and shows them all as frauds. I will be the only one who is raised from the dead to speak about it and interpret it. In that sense, it's hard. I want to encourage you to think in terms of, he says few, but it's few, relatively speaking, because in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it says, he was slain and by his blood he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He's a great, great, great Savior. A great, great, great Savior. I want to tell people about this great Savior. And I want them to hear so that they might trust in Him. He's the way to life. He's the way to the kingdom of God. We should pray and be done for this morning. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ, for His clarity, for His convictions, for His kindness. And we're thankful that he's a loving and awesome Savior. We're longing for the day for him to return. Lord, please use your Holy Spirit to keep your people, to be people who are not afraid of bad news, even as we read in Psalm 112 today, because we're in Christ, the righteous. In his name we pray, amen.